On this episode of AvTalk, we're all back at our desks. HNA is going to combine all of its airlines. We've got some eVTOL orders that we're actually interested in. And pigs, but not the flying kind. Hello, and welcome to episode 131 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here once again, as always, with Jason Urbinowitz. And I'm back, Ian. How is your European adventure without my, me? My European adventure. This is funny. My first European adventure without you in, in quite some time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, none of us have been to Europe in, oh, I don't know, 18, 19, 20 months. But you did. Didn't you do the 350 with SAS? Uh, I was not there for that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's such a um, – that one is such a blur because it happened – that was my last trip before everything shut down. And so that's kind of a a blur in the review mirror as it is. But this was my first time actually spending you know more than – because on that trip, I flew in – Went to the hotel, slept, and then flew back. So that was actually a two, I think, two day trip. Uh, um, the, the old fashioned yeah. turn and burn. I miss Exa- it. Yes. I mean, who doesn't fly across an ocean just to uh, turn around and come back? But this time I did more than that. No, it yeah. was good. It was good. Toulouse was very good. So for those that listened to the, the podcast last week, we were recording on Wednesday. It is now the following Wednesday. And I have since seen things and come home. On Thursday, like I mentioned last episode, we went to the A350 final assembly line and we toured the A350-1000 test aircraft. And those two, I put up a blog post on our blog and we'll have a, a great video out this Friday, same time the podcast comes out, that has all of the footage from both the summit, but also our tour of the final assembly line and the A350-1000. But I will just say I was a kid in the candy store. Excellent. I, it was just they they let us touch things. They let us look inside things. They let us go places. They don't normally let people go. And I was very excited about that. Of course, all the places they don't normally let people go, you can't take photographs of. So that was kind of you know the, the trade-off there. But I will say that we had a lot of fun. Uh, I learned a lot. And I, I'm very excited to, to show everybody what we learned when the video comes out on Friday. So as you're listening to the podcast... Finish listening to the podcast because we've got a great show uh, and lots to talk about. And when you're done with the podcast, go watch that video from Toulouse. And we get into, uh, Gabriel and I get into a lot of fun and only a slight amount of trouble. Excellent. That's the best combination. And out of curiosity, what is Airbus using for the A350 test bed these days? Is it still the uh, carbon fiber looking one? No. So they've got two that they're using for tests. The carbon fiber one, so the registration is FWWCF, funny enough, for the carbon fiber one. That one is being used for the airspace cabin, coming up with different stuff that they want to do on the cabin. We saw some really cool stuff there, not to spoil the video too much, but there's a lot of interesting things that they're doing with connectivity within the aircraft between, let's say, the seats and how you can control the seats or how you can watch things throughout the cabin, different 
lighting configurations. So you did uh, get on that aircraft. Yeah, yeah. They had so that, that open that's on the actually your second flight. time on that very aircraft now, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. It, we got to fly that in Chicago. I don't even know how many years ago, 2015, 2016. 2016. Uh, did you find my lens cap? Because I still believe it's on that aircraft somewhere. So the guy was complaining about this guy Something a few rattling, years ago right? who left a lens and they couldn't find – no, I forgot to ask. I'm sorry. All but, worth a shot. Uh, but yeah, they took us around that. We got to tour that a little bit. And that was fine. There wasn't anything that really blew me away there, mostly because I think I kind of knew about most of the things that they had been working on. A lot of those had, had already been announced and, and it's more of a marketing tool for Airbus to sell to customers that want to buy the A350. But the flying testbed A350 is MSN 59, which the, the registration there is FW nil because it's an A350-1000. Uh, so we're going Very to our nice. Latin roots here. But yeah, so that one is the, I think, first or second. I, I have to double check my my numbers, which A350-1000 that is. But that one has no cabin. It has special equipment in both the forward and aft cargo that moves 10 tons of water, either forward or back. So they can change the center of gravity of the aircraft in flight, either to forward or back, depending on, they can change it up to 10%, depending on what they're working on. They've got some cool cameras attached to the nose that they're using as more of a, a testing synthetic vision. They had the velocity minimum unstick, the VMU rig attached to the aircraft when we were there. So we got to go play around with that, the bright orange thing. that That's in the blog post uh, that you kind of get to see. And, and I, I did a, a tweet comparing the outside and the inside part of the rig because there's a lot more to that little skid plate that they have on the outside of the aircraft than, uh, than meets the eye. There's an entire structure in what would normally be the bulk cargo area of the A352-1000. There's a whole super structure thing that they built in to make sure that the the skid rig doesn't go anywhere. So that was cool. We got to see that. And then we got to watch the lead flight test engineer basically break the plane on purpose. They can do that from the flight test engineer's consoles at the midpoint of the aircraft. They can throw the pilot's off balance a little bit to see you know what's working and what's not. And the coolest thing there was is that the pilots see a kind of a, a synoptic version of the system. So the hydraulic system, a very you know focused version that the pilots get the information that they need and not a lot of what's going on behind. The flight test engineers see the whole diagram. So it's very different compared to what the pilots are seeing because the flight test engineers station is, is much more detailed, but they can pull them up side by side. And that, and that was really cool to see. Well, you had a much more exciting week than I did. It sounds like you need a nap, but it sounds like a good time. It was a great time. I'm glad to be home. I lucked out though because I was away for the week and my sump pump broke. So I came home and uh, replaced that yesterday. So that was fun. It's, ah, the, uh, it's, the it's joys like the of owning a home. Yeah, it's like the reward for, for leaving for the week is you get to find out what broke. So when we last saw each other, lo, these many days ago, I can't believe it was just you know a little over, uh, not even two weeks ago. You were in Los Angeles. I was leaving Los Angeles. And then you left Los Angeles. How was your ride home and, and all that good fun stuff? Good. I flew United to Newark of all places because I thought I was going to be flying on a 787-10. Unfortunately, that got downgraded to a 787-9, which is, you know, in economy largely, 
identical. So it was uh, fine. It was good. I had a cheeseburger. It was hot. Um, everything was fine. We landed early. Our gate wasn't available. We had to wait. So, you know, the standard new affair. Yeah. The usual. Not not too bad. Not too bad. Disappointed. I didn't get to fly on my first seven eight seven ten, but I'll have another opportunity one of these days. I also had the cheeseburger, and I thought it was quite good. No lettuce, no tomato, no ketchup, no mayo, nothing with that burger. Just cheese, bun, and burger. You didn't get the pickle? There's pickles on it. And pickles. I'm sorry. I think and the pickles, pickles made it. Uh, for and me, pickles. pickles made it. I, I, I don't like that COVID managed to kill lettuce and tomato on the United in-flight cheeseburger, but to, it is to what it is. To be perfectly honest, those are two toppings on a burger I'm not going to miss. I miss it because it's entertainment to put it all together on a tiny little tray. <laughs> you, you made this point before, and, and I feel like that, to me, isn't reason enough. It is for me, or at least if you're flying a United domestic 777, not that you can right now, that doesn't have entertainment. You have nothing else to do but to arrange your cheeseburger so it doesn't all fall down into the aisle. Ah, the small pleasures of flying. Mm Mm-hmm. So before we move on from the kind of past weeks, you followed along with the Airbus Summit loosely from New York. Was there anything that you took away that, that I may have missed? I mean, sometimes when you're when you're kind of watching from afar and you're seeing people on Twitter, you know, saying different things that, that maybe I didn't necessarily hear in the room or something like that. Was there anything that struck you that you thought you're like, yeah, that or no, not that? I mean, quite honestly, I wasn't paying that close attention since here in the East Coast, it was quite literally the middle of the night when this was ongoing. But a few points that I think several people raised that Airbus itself also raised that without a consensus from the governments of the world on what the future of sustainable aviation should be, it's not going to happen. I think this is a point Airbus made. You were there, so you can correct me if I'm wrong. But they were very much of the opinion that we as a you know, society need to figure out if sustainable aviation is a thing we're going to do or if hydrogen is a thing we're going to do. And everyone needs to pitch in to support it. If that doesn't happen, it's likely not going to become a reality. Did I get that right? Yeah, exactly. I think that, and I mentioned this in last week's podcast, and and so I, I won't belabor this point, but I think that the summit was really less about sustainable aviation or or what Airbus can do. It's that this is our vision. If anyone's got a better idea, we're all ears, but know that we can't do this by ourselves. And, And I think it was really a pitch in Airbus's case to the French and German governments or, or maybe European governments as a whole, and certainly looking for partners outside of Europe, looking especially to the US and to China to say, this is going to require a massive amount of investment on everyone's part. Let's pick something that's going to work or let's keep developing and see you know, what's the most promising thing and then quickly go with that. And I think the quickly part is the most important part of that. So, I mean, we'll see what comes out of the summit. I, I think that in in a month's time, in three months' time, if we don't start seeing agreements and consensus, then, then I get even more worried than I already am. Yeah, I would definitely like to see more advanced than or more advancement than airlines saying, "Hey, our new fleet is X percent more efficient 
Well, yeah, when you're replacing, you know, a 25, 30-year-old A318 with an A220, I hope it's going to be 20% more efficient than what it's replacing because if I'm replacing a car with a car that's a 20-year-old vehicle, it better be X percent more efficient. Um, So a lot of what airlines are doing now is just it's better because, of course, it's better. Engine technology has improved over 20 years. You didn't buy the aircraft because it's more efficient. That's a side effect. So really hoping that something comes out of this that governments and all included entities can come together and figure out what the hell we're going to do to make aviation more sustainable in the very near future. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's move on. Full speed ahead, back into this week's news. We start with, oh, let's see how many of the Hainan Airline Group airlines we can combine in the next five seconds. Ten. Uh, All right, let's do it. That was easy. Done. Do it. So the Hainan Airlines is... I don't even know if it's a, necessarily a parent airline. It's just kind of the namesake of the Heining Group. And so they disclosed their, their bankruptcy reorganization plan. They were, you know, were this huge, huge Chinese conglomerate that owned a bunch of airlines, a bunch of infrastructure related to airports or not, hotels. Uh, they owned Swissport at one time. They owned banks. They owned actual airports uh, and countries uh, on, I think, six continents. So a lot. Then it turned out they didn't have any money. Oh. So they've been going on this you know, reorganization plan for, for years now. And so now the plan that they came out with this week, they'll see Heinen combined with its 10 affiliates within the group, which works out because most of them are already painted in the same livery anyway. So it makes or it a variation of it. Yeah. The red and the yellow is just moved around slightly. It's um, almost kind of like instead of having Delta have regional flights operated by SkyWest and Endeavor and all the others that they just kind of had other airlines, full-fledged airlines as affiliates. It's very right, kind of strange. Right. Yeah. The whole thing never really made sense to me. But here we are. Uh, so they're going to combine their, their 10 affiliates into one airline. So I was reading about this in uh, Nikkei. And they, the 11 entities in total, so so Heinen Airlines plus the, the 10 subsidiaries, not subsidiaries, but affiliates, owed 397 billion yuan to nearly 5,000 creditors. Their assets add up to only 94.6 billion yuan. So that's about 300 uh, billion short. Yeah. And so if they tried to just liquidate all of these airlines, the projected value is only 41 billion. So I guess they keep going until they make some money. As long as they can pay the fuel bill, which has actually been a problem with them in the past. But I would very much like to hear you list the name of the 10 affiliate airlines that will presumably all be rolled up into Heinen. All right. So Heinen will be, I guess, the the namesake airline. And then we've got the 10 affiliates, including Urumqi, Fushou, China, Xinhua, Shanxi, Lucky Air, Air Shangan, and uh, Guanxi Beibu Gulf Airlines, which is not my favorite Chinese airline to name. That one goes to the, the I believe it's the colorful greater, I can't even remember what it's in, but I saw it, uh, the livery uh, when we were in Toulouse and I was like, colorful oh, Guangzhou, I think it is. Yes, that's it. There you go. So I just like that they're colorful. Yeah. And we only listed seven of the affiliate airlines. There are three more 
yes. presumably out there it, that it are says, so yet the, to be identified. Nikkei list, yeah, the Nikkei list says including. So I, I don't know who the other three are yet, but we'll see. So there you go. That plan is underway. We are seeing a consolidation uh, among Chinese airlines, which given the current climate, no surprise. Oh, I think there are a couple other. Is West Air an affiliate of HNA Group? I, I One would assume. T-Engine, I, I think as well. Yes. GX Airlines, I think. I think these airlines are or at least once were. And these are some pretty major airlines in China. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, uh, you know, large airlines with no money. And so now there's consolidation. Let's stay in China and convert more 767s from passenger aircraft to freighter aircraft. Boeing and Gameco, which is based in Guangzhou, has decided to open up two lines for 767 conversions, which I think brings the total number of 767 conversion lines to 2,412 billion. It seems like these are high demand. Every 767-300 that ever flew is going to be converted to to cargo aircraft by at some point, which is interesting because the 767-300 is going to run up against the the ICAO standards in a few years' time. So that'll be interesting to to see how many basically how many they can get converted by then. More cargo coming and more orders for more cargo aircraft surely to follow. More cargo, more good. Mm-hmm. So this one I didn't see happening so soon, but when you read the the backstory, it, it all starts to make sense. Qatar Airways is bringing back five of its A380s. At least five. At least five to start, really. And we'll see how many more they go because they have to carry passengers to see their families for Christmas. That's true. Uh, that's true. At least that's what Qatar Airways CEO Abu Al-Bakr told Executive Traveler, the Australian magazine. So it turns out that because of the lack of capacity due to the ongoing dispute between Airbus and Qatar Airways about the A350 underpaint skin issues. Uh, they, Which has only impacted Qatar yes, as far as we know. Uh, it's very important to Qatar has said it's impacted other A350s, but no one's been able to say which other A350s. So we continue down this road of shrugging our shoulders and waiting for somebody else to say something. But because of that, there are A350s that are grounded. 13 of those remain grounded by Qatar. So they're going to bring back five of their A380s, which Qatar said they never want to fly again. But now their hand has been forced. And now they are going to uh, to bring those back and fly them beginning uh, sometime in November. Yeah, just a few short months or maybe it was even weeks ago, Akbar Al-Baker was, was very adamant that the A380 was a horrible decision. It was the worst mistake the airline ever made. They're an inefficient aircraft, probably not wrong, that could never be profitable. But here we are, just a couple weeks and or months later, where suddenly the A380 is not looking so bad for Qatar, is it? No, some money is better than no money. I, I mean, I, as far as the airline's concerned. And, and, and did I see something... You know, did I see something about them also wanting to borrow triple sevens and pilots from from BA or I guess like equity partner BA to, <laughs> to help plug this gap? I, I mean, I hadn't seen that, but I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, their usage of pilots and aircraft has gone both ways. 
So I would not be surprised if that yeah, happened. Yeah, sure. This is also on top of um, resuming flights on the A330, which it had previously completely retired and I believe even painted all white out of the Qatar Airways livery. And those are back flying, presumably. They're, they're not in the actual Qatar Airways schedule, but they are flying. So Qatar is having to make all sorts of very interesting moves to fill this gap with the A350s, which is only impacting Qatar right now, as they were very clear to say that the Qatari authorities have, have grounded that aircraft. That was not their decision. It wasn't an Airbus decision. It was a local authority decision that so far no one else has followed through with. Very, very strange. There's a story there that we don't know. If you happen to know it, send us an email at podcast.fr24.com. By all means, let's stay with the kind of uh, A380 for just a moment and say that Emirates is going to have 50 back in service by the end of the year, which seems on a grand scale of recovery timelines, not that bad as far as an airline like Emirates is concerned. That's a minor bit of the conversation that I want to have. The conversation that I want to have today is about this new Dubai Expo livery. Mm, yeah, here I was happy to just be at some point back up to three daily A380s from Emirates into JFK. But if one of those three happens to be one of these Expo liveries, that would be icing on top of the cake. So A6EEU is now wearing what Emirates is calling its first ever total livery. So they painted the whole plane and it's loud. Yeah. And it's the it's, first it's of very three. loud. Yeah. So that'll be fun to follow. It's a, kind of a blue base with Dubai Expo in billboard titles with lots of color, lots of splash, and it's very loud. Currently on its way to Los Angeles on its first revenue flight after painting and coming to an airport likely near you if you live near an airport served by an Emirates A380. So yeah, first of three, and that's pretty cool, huh? Yeah. It last flew September 8th, actually, JFK to Dubai, and then pretty quickly, I guess, turned around September 29th. Its first flight was to LA, where it is actually already on the ground there. And we don't know where it's going after that. But if you're- One assumes airport, it's going back to Dubai. I would assume so. After that, though, <laughs> Sorry, if uh, the Emirates A380 serves your airport, definitely keep an eye out because yeah. you cannot miss it. The Emirates A380 served my airport once. Once. One time. And it was right terrible. There. It was terrible. You <laughs> failed miserably. Oh, that was terrible. I heard uh, they put the, uh, the jet bridge crew in charge of that flight, in charge of uh, rehabbing the ATS system. <laughs> That's Very a few whole other podcast. That joke. Yeah. Yeah, Very few people if, understand if, that joke. But it, it, if you've flown through Chicago, you get it. Anytime in the past, what, nine years or something? I, I it sure seems the, like it. The rehab. Flights that I might actually have a chance of seeing, the Southwest new special livery, the Disney – so it's Southwest's 50th anniversary. It's Disney World's 50th anniversary. They got together. There is now a Southwest 737 in Disney at 50 special livery. So that – I like it. It's much – I want to call it much more understated than the Dubai Expo livery, but I thought they did a nice job. And that one is not painted. It is Stickers. Stickers. Yeah, Stickers. Far yeah. fewer pastel colors on this aircraft. Yeah, so uh, but uh, a very nice. It's got the the castle and and some. There's actually, if you look at the the photos up close, there's some real nice detailing there. Uh, yeah, so and on the, worth, the, uh, 
worth on the inside. I think they put um, some decals on the inside of mm-hmm. the window shades too. So somebody in a window seat flying from Baltimore to Buffalo can be uh, quite aware of the Disney 50th anniversary <laughs> if they close their window shade, which you shouldn't do. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe to, yeah, I don't know what to tell you. But yeah, that's where that's at. What do you say we take a quick break and then come back and talk about some new developments that have happened as far as orders? Let's see, we've got orders, we've got lawsuits, we've got new airlines, and last but not least, we'll have pigs. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Jason, you were pretty excited about this one. I don't know whether it was because of your love for the Finnair A319s or the fact that they recycled so much of it, but I would love for you to tell me more. Sure. Well, Finnair decided recently that it doesn't need a few of its narrowbody aircraft anymore and decided to part some of them in-house, which is quite rare, I think, for an airline the size of Finnair to do. But it has announced that it has dismantled and recycled 99.2% of one of its old Airbus A319s, which is pretty damn impressive since they were targeting 90 to 95%. And they recycled almost 100% of the aircraft, which is really just cool, I think, for an airline the size of Finnair in that region to do. They said over 15 tons of aluminum was recycled and will now be used. Well, this is from InFlight Mag. InFlight Online says will be used in automatic models of Mercedes-Benz vehicles with the automotive industry being one of the biggest users of recycled aluminum. So I don't know, go out and buy a European model Mercedes and maybe part of the exterior of that car will be from a Finnair A319. I would love it if you bought the Mercedes and it still had the Finnair livery on it. That'd be fun. That would be really fun. But this particular aircraft had uh, 54,710 hours across 32,966 flights. So by no means was a young aircraft. They recycled pretty much everything, all parts, all the aluminum, I guess the landing gear. I would love to know what the 0.8% of that aircraft that they could not recycle was, though. That is not noted in the report. So when we were in Toulouse last week, we onboard the carbon fiber A350. They were talking about how a lot of the things on board the aircraft are either recyclable or recycled already. And one of the big things was like they were talking about the carpet and things like that and how they can, you know, reuse the the seat upholstery or, or things like that for other things. But then I asked about the actual, you know, the carbon fiber. And they, they kind of demurred. They were like, yeah, we're, we're working on the things. The plane's still young. We're playing carbon fiber plane, very young, very, very new. We're working on that. Smelt uh, it down so, to plastic. Yeah. I mean, so hopefully they'll, they'll figure that one out. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they will, but they were less gung-ho about recycling of that, that particular aircraft than they were of everything inside of it. But I'm, I mean, 99.2% of, is really impressive, but yeah, I'm, I'm now, and of course now I'm I'm also very curious about that 08 percent. What didn't get recycled? Thirty eight point five percent of the aircraft will be reused by Finnair itself. Uh, just parts and other things, like you mentioned. I'm sure the carpet you can clean that and put it in another aircraft. Uh, the seats, all sorts of mechanical parts can be reused by Finnair itself. So that's um, something I think we're going to see a lot more of in the very near future. Yeah, I really hope so. I think that's great. This one is really neat because 
it's one of the first eVTOL orders that actually makes sense to my brain initially. That's the first. I know. Work with me here. So Bristow, the offshore passenger and freight helicopter operator, these are the folks that do a lot of transfers between offshore oil rigs or random islands that the only way to get stuff is via helicopter or, or things like that. So they've got experience with you know vertical lift aircraft operating to inhospitable locations and dealing with those types of things. And so they've kind of been on a, a two-month-long, two-and-a-half-month-long eVTOL ordering spree. I mean, these aren't orders. These are memorandums of understanding. But they're also memorandums of understanding that allow Bristow to help develop the actual aircraft and the operating certificate. So I, I think that's pretty interesting. So this week's version of that was Bristow placed a, a conditional order for 100 aircraft from EVE with deliveries expected to start in 2026. Days before that, they intended to purchase 50 eVTOLs from Vertical Aerospace. And last month, they said that they were going to be the principal launch customer for Electra Aero's hybrid electric short takeoff and landing aircraft. So lots of interest from Bristow in all of these electric, either short takeoff and uh, landing or uh, vertical takeoff and landing. So I, I think, I mean, if anyone can do it, I, I feel like it's them. I have never heard of any of these companies before until this very moment. <laughs> Except for Bristol, I know who the operator of the helicopters are, but all of these right, VTOL right. manufacturers or are supposed manufacturers in the future, I've never heard of any of them. It, it's very weird to have to hear these names and then to go later and look at who these companies are. Not that it matters because none of them actually make anything right now, I presume. <laughs> I guess this is what it must have been like back in, what, the 1940s or 50s when airlines were ordering random airplanes from random manufacturers that may or may not have ever been delivered. It's a whole new world. I guess the EVE aircraft is a little bit more, I don't want really to call it a sure thing, but it's a little bit more established because of Embraer's backing. This is the one that, that Embraer is is behind. But the others, I mean, I mean, certainly, sure. I, I guess that's a, I guess that's an interesting parallel, and and we certainly are living in kind of a, a new age of, huh? I wonder if they'll make it, or in twenty years we'll be like, oh, here's a brochure. That's really interesting. Yeah, the Embraer one is interesting that tie up, but I'm still just kind of trying to grapple with the fact that none of the major manufacturers themselves are getting in on this. Boeing's not doing it. Airbus isn't doing it. Embraer is not doing it. Bombardier wasn't doing it. Well, that, I mean, in Airbus's case, though, I mean, Boeing is kind of doing it as far as an investment process, and Airbus is doing it. But they're not going to call it a the, Boeing or an Airbus. Well, but they're calling it the City Airbus. The City Airbus, they unveiled, they had City Airbus, now they've got City Airbus Next Gen that they unveiled at the Airbus Summit. And that was the kind of, they went from a four seater kind of like the rotor, four rotors to eight rotors, and they're all geared for level flight. So it's a different development thing and kind of a, a bigger aircraft. So, I mean, Airbus is working on it. Boeing, it, sure, it, it might not be called a Boeing, or as things move along, it might eventually be called a Boeing. There might be something, you know, called a Boeing something or other. A uh, Boeing that, something that was, or other. I like yeah. it. Yeah. 
mid seven something, something or other. It it sounds it's it all sounds good. But I think with Bristow, it's interesting because they get so much of their revenue from the oil and gas market. I mean, they fly so many of those you know offshore oil rigs those that they're responsible for. So I feel like all of this eVTOL stuff is a really interesting. You know, it's in their wheelhouse, but it also allows them to pivot out of oil and gas as hopefully we stop extracting oil and gas, or at least there's a big drawdown in oil and gas extraction. So I think it's very interesting, both from their expertise and their current business model. So I, I just, I wanted to bring that one up. Well, I was in Europe. There was big news in American courts and JetBlue and American are both being sued by a bunch of states and the Department of Justice for reasons that I don't fully understand. And here is our chief legal correspondent, Jason, to possibly explain this to me. Hey, look at that, a promotion for me. That's awesome. So let's see. Now that we've been hearing about this for a couple of weeks now, that DOJ might sue JetBlue and American for their Northeast Alliance or whatever it's called for anti-competitive behavior that the airlines would work together to to set prices together, which they're not actually doing, and that it would limit competition here in New York and Boston. And Cranky Flyer has a, a great write-up of this, a couple of great write-ups actually, that really poke a lot of holes in this lawsuit that it, it just isn't quite connecting. For one thing, the DOJ just assumes that no one in New York would ever fly out of Newark. And that's kind of a preposterous uh, I, assumption. I mean, it's yeah, like, a lot of people do fly out of Newark. I just did, or I flew into Newark. So a lot of their argument is that a serious New Yorker would not consider an airport in New Jersey. And that is just not true. They go on to mention that the JetBlue effect, which is something they mentioned, will not be a thing if American and JetBlue are working together and can, can more uh, and uh, can set pr- or work together on setting prices without actually competing against each other. But again, Cranky notes that the JetBlue effect is not really a thing that anyone says other than JetBlue itself. The Southwest effect is a thing. The JetBlue effect may have been a thing in 2003 launching service between JFK and Syracuse, but it hadn't really existed outside of that bubble. More so a case in possibly in Boston where JetBlue is really, really the 800-pound gorilla in the room or 8,000-pound gorilla. But in New York, it just if you put JetBlue and American together, they do make a sizable competitor to Delta and United, which have a, an overwhelming majority of the operation here. But we're really going to have to see where this goes because the argument just really doesn't check out. But for now, for the passengers, everything is full steam ahead. JetBlue and American are very much doing their Northeast Alliance. You can even connect within security between their terminals at uh, JFK now, which is a thing. I don't see this as a negative thing. I hope that (laughs) this lawsuit is tossed or, or works out in the airline's favor. But this should be very interesting to watch over the years, I'm sure, to come. This sounds like one of those things where the lawsuit's not designed to actually win the lawsuit. It's designed to extract concessions for something that the DOJ and the states want the airlines to do. 
I'd imagine it's about slots. They're going to, but this should have been the, in the original agreement already, which it was, I believe. JetBlue, I think, or maybe it was American, had to give up some slot pairings at LaGuardia. I'm not sure about JFK. There are no slots now at Newark, which doesn't make any freaking sense, but that's all about gate space there, which is probably why they didn't include Newark in this uh, lawsuit at all. But there were concessions up front, and the Two airlines conceded, so I don't know why they're bringing this lawsuit now. A lot of the data they they said or they mentioned in the lawsuit just doesn't really check out. And there have already been benefits, such as American says says it will or has already upgraded all its flights in New York to two-cabin aircraft, so no more little CRJs or ERJs, which is great. JetBlue's added a bunch of cities, as has American. So, yeah, we'll see. Okay. Yeah. Okay, then. I still don't understand it, but I understand more now. I appreciate that. Or should I say, aha? Ah, I see what you did. Yeah. Uh So Express Jet's back as aha. Air. Air? Hotel. Hotel. Adventure. Adventure. There you go. They're going to fly 50-seat ERJ-145s to and from Reno to destinations up and down the West Coast. Interesting in that it's kind of a a weird hybrid low cost model between it's like I'm getting shades of Avello and not quite Moxie but like Sun Country. I, I don't Mox, I don't really Moxie. know what it, I, I think you mean Breeze. Sorry, Breeze. My apologies. I'm dating myself. I mean, it, it kind of feels like. Of Velo Jr. in that they are only on the West Coast. They are only flying from smaller airports to one other airport. In this case, they are based out of Reno, Tahoe. So I hope you want to go either to or from Reno because you do not have an option. You must fly to or from Reno. They do not offer connecting flights like a Velo, like Breeze. They're only operating on E-145s. So that's something. <laughs> you, you can't break <laughs> You can't bring a carry-on bag because you're flying on an E-145, so they physically will not fit on the aircraft. You have to pay $10 for a seat assignment, which I don't know why anyone would do since it's an E-145 and there are no middle seats. Yeah, I mean, what? I mean, good for ExpressJet for figuring out what to do with its aircraft after United punted it out of the building. But I don't know. Does the West Coast really need more of this right now? I will see. Well, if you want to fly from, let's say, Fresno to Reno, this seems like a good choice for you if you want to fly Tuesday or Thursday starting November. I mean, who doesn't want to go to Reno on a Tuesday? Yeah, I just don't really understand. I mean, I get a velo more because they're, they're leaving out of, you know, a, a fringe airport in a major metropolitan area. It's LA-ish. Reno is just, it, it's not that so I, I don't really know who their target market is here. People who really love secondary cities in casino-friendly markets? I guess so. I mean, they do serve Ontario, California, which is LA-ish, but that's not their hub. That's a destination from Reno. And you can't fly from Ontario to Redmond, Oregon via Reno because they don't do connecting flights, much like, I believe, Avello and Moxie and or Breeze. So I, I don't know. They must have done their market research. They know what's going on, but this is just very confusing to me. Well, then let me clear up some confusion with some pigs. 
This is a fun story. This is a fun story. And I've been waiting an entire episode. Why we didn't lead with the story, I don't know. We should have. But Amsterdam Airport, Schiphol Airport, is trialing the usage of pigs to control bird populations. So there, there are farms on the airport. There's farmland on the airport grounds. So the farm, the sugar beets are harvested. Then there is leftover stuff from the harvest. The geese that migrate through that area really like the stuff that's left over. It's wonderful, delicious, delicious food. Enter the pigs. The pigs eat the stuff before the geese can get there. And hopefully the geese are like, well, now I don't want to stop here because apparently there are a lot of bird strikes. That's, I didn't realize how many bird strikes there were at Skipple, but it's a lot, you know, hundreds every year. So, I mean, it, obviously at all major airports, you're going to have issues with bird strikes, but apparently at Skipple, it's a rough business. They have nearly two dozen bird specialists designed to, you know, their job is to keep the birds away. And so now they're trying out pigs. This is a scientific experiment. They have a control area. They have a pig area, and they're going to see if the the pigs doing their pig stuff keep the birds away. The pigs are penned in. It's a very large area, but the pigs are penned into it. There's no risk of pigs entering the runway, which would be a new one, I think. Although probably not. I mean, there's there's been goats, there's been sheep, there's been all sorts of things on on runways. There's there's always a notum floating out there somewhere about cows. So, but interesting, you know, the the airports are trying new and non-lethal ways to try and keep the birds away from the airport so that the birds are safe, the people in the airplanes are safe, and pigs are fed. I will note, however, that the article that I read from the Dutch newspaper noted, and and I don't know if this was like a translation issue, the way it was worded, but very matter-of-factly, the last line of the article was, oh, by the way, the pigs are going to be eaten for food. Yeah, I can't not think of the Simpsons episode where they they resolve a problem with an animal by introducing a predator animal that will eat that animal. And to get rid of that animal, they keep introducing other animals. So there was like a Chinese needle snake will eat the lizards, but then the snake eating gorillas will eat the snakes. But then they say, won't we be left with the gorillas? And they say, oh no, they'll simply freeze to death when winter rolls around. I kind of feel like we're in that situation here, but I hope not. But I I don't think it's quite (laughs) the same, but it is interesting to see whether or not it works. How do we solve our, our goose problem? Pigs. I mean, how do, how do we solve our inevitable pig problem? Well, winter's coming. Sometimes you got to think outside the pen, Jason. On that note. On that note. Some housekeeping before we go. Last episode, I promised a conversation with Malcolm, who is uh, Airbus's chief test pilot. That conversation is still in the works. It turns out that because you're Airbus's chief test pilot, you actually have to fly the plane. So he was unavailable this week. But we're going to have him in a few episodes time, assuming we can get all the schedules to work out and all of that good fun stuff. But I'm really excited to talk to him. I know Jason's really excited to talk to him. And so I think that's going to be a wonderful episode. So so stay tuned and thank you for your patience on that one. I'm going to ask him about my lens cap. He'll find it for you. I talked to this guy for for 20 minutes, almost entirely by accident. And and that's like the one regret I have about last week is not recording him while he was talking. So we're going to do it into the Just remember what you said and ask those questions again. Yeah, I've written it down. Literally, I have actually written it down. So that's coming up. This, however, has been episode 131 
of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here once again, as always with... Once again, as always with Jason Rubinowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.